I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible uh, to two places. Uh, first to Malachi chapter 3. Though as uh, some have joked, it's really the Italian prophet, Malachi, but well, we'll <laughs> bad joke, really, really bad. Malachi uh, chapter 3. There we go. So Malachi chapter 3, we're going to read just one verse. I'll mention some of the context when we uh, dive into this verse, but for now, just reading chapter 3, verse 6, a very foundational uh, passage and very much uh, one that is dear to us as it reminds us of the faithfulness of our God in the midst of our unfaithfulness as well. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it reads, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I'm going to turn next to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Again, we'll just read a single verse, verse 17. There we read, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So far from God's holy word. I'm going to turn also to the Belgic Confession, which you'll find in the back of the hymnal we sang from, to Article 1. And it's on page 855. And we've been in a short series through the attributes of God, and we had said earlier that the attributes of God are his perfections uh, as they have been revealed to us uh, in his word. And so we've considered already uh, the fact that God is a single and simple spiritual being, what that meant. And then last time we had considered that God is also eternal and incomprehensible. And so this morning we're going to take up the next two attributes of God, that he is invisible and unchangeable. And so let's uh, read together then Article 1, The Only God, as a summary of the attributes of God revealed to us in his word. So we confess together. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. So far from the Belgic. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been talking about, there's no more glorious thing for us to consider, no more uh, weighty matter to contemplate and spend our time thinking about than who God is. And we've specifically entitled this series, Knowing Our God, and the emphasis falling on our God. Uh, The idea of possession of God, the idea of having God as our God, gets at the heart of his covenant with us. God had promised his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so it's not a matter of just knowing God as sort of a distant thing, but knowing our God, uh, the one who has given himself to us and the one who then calls us um, in Christ uh, to belong to him. And so we've been thinking about what it means to know who our God is, our covenant-keeping God. And so today we're going to consider, as we just mentioned, uh, two more of God's attributes, that God is invisible and that God is unchangeable 
also known as God's immutability. Uh, what do we mean when we confess that God is such, that God is invisible and God is unchangeable? We're going to spend most of our time on the fact that God is unchangeable, but let's first briefly think about the fact that God is invisible. We hear this, for example, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, he gives this doxology. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we've seen this already when we spoke on the fact that God is spirit, that God does not have a body, and therefore God is not visible to our eyes. Again, we see this confessed throughout the scriptures, yet we also see throughout scripture uh, God revealing himself uh, to people. Uh, We also see the fact that God promises that we will see him face to face. And so how do we make sense of the fact that Paul uh, proclaims God as invisible on the one hand, and yet God's promise that we will see him face to face? And the answer first is that throughout God's revelation of himself, often throughout the Old Testament, is that while God does not reveal his essence uh, to us as finite creatures, we can never take that in or behold him, yet God reveals himself in symbols and in visions uh, under certain signs to uh, his people. And what is revealed then in these visions that God's people see uh, throughout the Bible is not the essence of God, but God's operations. God as he makes himself known uh, to us. And though no one has ever beheld uh, the vision of the essence of God, yet we have seen him as he's made himself known in visions and in signs. But we also confess more than just in visions and signs that God has revealed himself, the invisible God has made himself known in the Lord Jesus Christ, in making him known. Jesus himself tells us that if we have seen him, we know how the verse goes, we have seen the Father. God has made himself known and seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, that great covenant promise to behold God face to face, kind of the climax of I will be your God, you will be my people, right? The the heightness, the, the, the weightiness of that is all in the fact that we will behold God face to face and that we will see him, the invisible God, in the face of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been made like us in every respect, save sin, and that he in his glorified body anticipates what awaits us, so that to see him is to see our Father. It's really a marvelous thing, then, that God has made himself known. The invisible God has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean then for us as we confess that God is invisible? Well, it also firstly means that we, that we are to not uh, curiously seek into what God has kept hidden from us. That we're not to peer into uh, the essence of God, the secret things belong to the Lord, as his word reminds us. And so it restrains our curiosity and positively it encourages modest thinking about God. It reminds us that God is far above us. It reminds us that it's not a matter of our own eyes and our own senses coming to God, but it's a matter of God needing to reveal himself to us. Job 11, verse 7 and 9 says, or through 9 says this, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? 
Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And so we confess that our God is invisible. Secondly, if you want to spend some more time thinking about this morning, is God is unchangeable. It's also referred to that God is immutable. And this is very important. Uh, last night we had a really wonderful time at Nicole's apartment. She invited us uh, a number of people over uh, for a hymn sing, a uh, Thanksgiving hymn sing. It was really an encouraging time. And uh, kind of not related to the hymn sing at all. But afterwards we were talking about the value of things, uh, even the value of money. And how that is in itself relative. The, the value of the dollar is relative. It's always changing and measured against something else. And it reminds us that everything in this world, even things that we think are certain and sure, are always changing. Uh, it was the early uh, pre-Socratic Greek philosopher Heraclitus uh, who had said that you can never step in the same river twice. And his point was to say that everything is always becoming, always changing. Um, we ourselves are always changing. We're growing older. Our bodies tend to break down at some point. Um, things are constantly in flux. And that could be very um, alarming. It could be very disorienting and very difficult uh, for God's people. And yet, we confess that in the midst of all of the change, right, becoming changing is a creaturely thing. In the midst of all of that, God is a rock, God is a refuge. God, as we read in Malachi chapter 3 and in James chapter 1, God does not change. It's a wonderful confession uh, that we make that God does not change. So I want to spend just a moment thinking about those two verses. Uh, First James chapter 1, if you want to look at that verse again with me. There James, again, just to read that verse, says... Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so here, James speaks of the Father as specifically the Father of lights. Not just light in the singular, but lights. And a number of commentators um, have understood that um, James here is referring to of course, the natural lights, think of the sun and the moon and the stars as they emit light that illumines the earth, but also that of what, he, what others have called the supernatural light, those uh, in the mind, uh, those of illumination, of regeneration, conversion, sanctification, and how God is spoken of as the father of those lights, that he is the uncreated light uh, from which all created lights find their source. But James goes on to say that unlike the lights around us, the sun, the moon, and the stars, unlike our own minds enlightened by various truths, how they often change and do change, the Father of lights does not change, right? Think about the sun and the moon. They have various appearances, whether it's at dawn, the sun appears a certain way, whether it's at high noon, right? The sun looks uh, and its fullness and its intensity and brightness, or at dusk when the sun begins to set, right? The sun changes, its light varies. It could be clouded, um, it can be in the fullness of, of, a, of a bright, um, clear day. The sun changes, but the Father does not change. And so James removes from God, as the Father of lights, all sense of change. God does not change. 
And more than that, he says that not only does God not change, but there is not even a shadow of change in God. The sun has its various excursions throughout the year. We call them solstice. Um, and it's the same Greek word used here uh, to describe the fact that God uh, has no change, no vicissitudes uh, in him. And so God, in the midst of all the lights that we see, is a light that does not change. We also read in Malachi chapter 3 the same reality very briefly. It says, Therefore I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Again, a very simple statement. And yet, in the midst of the context here in Malachi, a very important statement uh, for us to consider. If you read the context of Malachi, God makes this declaration to his people after the fact that they have sinned against him. And they've been constant in their rebellion and constant in their sin against the Lord. And God says in the midst of their unfaithfulness and their constant changing and their devotion to the Lord, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, the people of God, are not consumed. And therefore, the very foundation of our relationship with the Lord as those who are constantly changing We rest in the fact that God does not change. His immutability, his unchangeableness is at the foundation of true religion, of our relationship, our covenant bond with him. The same idea is behind the words of Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 and following. Jeremiah says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so in a very straightforward manner, God's word tells us that God does not change, that there is not even a shadow of change in God. We read this again throughout the scriptures, though we don't have necessarily the time to consider it all, other than maybe just one verse here. In Psalm 102, uh, verses 25 and following, we read of God's immutability. It says there, of old, it's praying to the Lord, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They all will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And so we confess then that God does not change. Though he relates to us who change, though he relates to his creation that is constantly changing, in the midst of all of it, God himself remains immutable. Whether in the work of creation, God does not change. Whether in his work of revealing himself, God does not change Even in the incarnation, when God assumes to himself, the second person of the Trinity assumes to himself a human nature, God does not change. It's a great mystery in that, and yet one that the scriptures call us to confess. And so what are some objections then to God's, the fact that God does not change? And we see this, uh, for example, expressed in Arminian theology who will often compromise on God's immutability with regard to his knowledge and his will. 
Arminian theology will say that God changes his will based upon human choices. And God changes his knowledge based upon what mankind does. Right? As man acts, God doesn't know in advance. And therefore, as we make decisions, God's knowledge changes. He learns things. He comes to know things. And as we make decisions, God's will now changes as he orders things accordingly in response to what man has done. Now, there's a lot more uh, that can be said about that. But we see that in that theology, the immutability of God is compromised. That, that God's will is now made to change. God's knowledge is now made to change. Rather, the Reformed have confessed on the basis of God's word, again, in a very straightforward manner, that God does not change in his will. God does not change in his knowledge. That God remains immutable in all that he is. And therefore, God's will, as he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, does not change. And again, a great mystery is that in so doing, God has made our decisions, our choices to have real significance. In a world of pure chance, in a world undetermined by God, our decisions have no real meaning. Uh, They're just caught up within the meaninglessness of the world. But the fact that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass means in the midst of that, our decisions have meaning and purpose. Again, a great mystery in which we do not seek to pit against one another, the sovereignty of God and our responsibility and choices, but rather to confess both of them Uh, recognizing that God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass and that my decisions, my choices are meaningful and that the fact that God has established those things is what gives them meaning as well. But again, we see that, that when we begin to compromise on that point, we begin to really compromise on the very character of who God is, his perfections as he's revealed them to us, namely as one who is immutable, one who is unchangeable. And so there's much more that could be said about that, but I want to move on to think about a few ways that that confessing that God is immutable is also profitable uh, to us as living as his covenant people. And so the first thing is that it's profitable for the glory of God. God reveals the fact that he does not change for his own glory. Right? In the midst of a, of a creation that is constantly changing, God stands apart as one who does not change. We being susceptible to things around us, right? It, it, it testifies to our weakness, to our creatureliness. But the fact that God does not change is to, the, is to the glory of his incorruptibility. To the glory of his name as one who is not under the effects and the powers of created things, but one who stands over them and is not changed by them. And so we stand in awe at the glory of our immutable God, one who is incorruptible. And this is the glory that belongs to God alone. He alone is immutable. Heraclitus, in some sense, is correct. Right? As we step, we can never stand in the step in the same river twice. Things are always changing in flux, becoming. But God is God is and does not change, and that alone belongs to him, and we glorify God on the basis of that. Confessing that God is immutable is also also profitable for us, uh, that we might know the, the, the value of the things around us, right? Everything around us, kingdoms and cities and states, princes and presidents, riches, honors, glories, 
health, good fortune, all of those things change and will change. None of those things are immutable. None of those things are permanent. None of those things are our God. God alone is immutable. And so then as we confess that God alone does not change, it reminds us then that our confidence cannot be in the things of this world that are constantly changing, but in the God who does not change. It's why the scriptures constantly speak of God metaphorically as the rock. Now rocks, of course, over time we know them to erode, but the idea is that a rock uh, symbolizes God's unchangeable nature. That God does not change. Though the world uh, changes, the mountains stand generation to generation. Therefore, our confidence alone is in God who is our rock. And our hearts are then are set upon God and not on the things of this world that are constantly changing. The third thing that this... Uh, confessing that God is immutable is profitable for us, that it teaches us then to, to run away from and to detest our sin. Right? The fact that God is unchangeable means that he is unchangeable also as the avenger and punisher of sin even to all eternity. God will not change in his posture towards sin as one who will punish it. The great prophet Isaiah, will be considering Isaiah 25 for our second service, but Isaiah ends his, the entire book of Isaiah with these words, Isaiah 66, verse 24. There he says, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. God will punish sin to eternity. And therefore, the unchangeableness of God towards sin ought then to cause us to run away from it and ought to, of course, cause us then to confess our sin and to seek refuge and forgiveness from it in the Lord Jesus Christ, in looking to him and knowing that in Christ my sins are forgiven. In Christ, though God be unchangeable toward his posture toward sin, his posture toward me may change. Insofar as I come to know Jesus Christ, that I may no longer be under his wrath, but under his blessing. And in that respect, his blessing, his love for me itself then will not change. For Jesus Christ, if I am in him, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will be a refuge, a strength for us into all eternity. So God's immutability then calls us to run and to seek refuge in our unchangeable Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, confessing that God is immutable, is profitable towards us because it gives us confidence and comfort in every circumstance and situation. And we've seen this already, right? The world may change, the world may shake and totter, but God remains stable. This is the whole idea behind Psalm 46, I could read some of the verses there. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Right? The picture there is the entire earth undergoing a cosmic 
earthquake in which everything is, up, is, is uprooted. Everything is in upheaval. But then it goes on to say, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. You might say, well, why is that city of God in the midst of a world that is shaking so stable? Because God is in the midst of her, as it says. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when her morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And therefore, God himself as our rock gives us constancy, gives us stability in the midst of a world. Though the world be in upheaval, God remains our rock and our stability. And lastly, when we confess that God is immutable, it's profitable for us that we too might pursue constancy in our lives. You've been made in the image of the immutable God. Now, yes, we change, but we are to pursue and desire that our zeal for the Lord, our commitment to Him, the promises we made, our words given, ought to imitate God and that they may not be in constant flux or inconstancy, but stable and sure and true and even immutable. We're often fickle in our intentions, right? We commit to something and then we sort of our commitment washes away. We promise something and we hold to that, but then we forget and we sort of, again, trickle away from committing that to that. Our love for the Lord may be strong for a moment and then it just kind of dissipates. Our love for his church, for the people of God, right, can be very fervent at a time and then all of a sudden we're distant. And so as we confess that our God is immutable, the good things that we have committed ourselves to, we then ought to pursue our own creaturely immutability toward. That we ought to be constant in our intentions to love the Lord, to serve him. That we are to be constant in keeping the promises we offer before God and before his church and the vows that we take. We ought to be constant in our profession of Christ. That no circumstance or situation I find myself in, whether in the assembly of God's people or out in the world, right? in all of that I ought to be constant, unchanging in my confession of Jesus Christ. And of the Christian faith. Um, to be constant, unchanging in love and in truth and in good works. And therefore, as I imitate the God in whose image that I have been made by the power of his Holy Spirit, as I belong to Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I then am to pursue constancy in all that I undertake in the name of God and for his glory. And in that regard, the doctrine of God's immutability is so vital for our Christian lives that we might pursue constancy and and unchangeableness in them. It's vital for our life as a congregation. We're not bound together by coercion or power or force. Nobody's forcing you here. We're bound together by our, our commitment to one another in love for one another. Brotherly love is the bond and the power of the Spirit that keeps us together. And therefore, if the church is to grow and thrive, if we are to be the body of Christ here, then we must imitate by the power of the Spirit of Christ in us. We must imitate God in His immutability. 
It's a wonderful thing then, and a wonderful uh, goal before us, right? As we think about how do we grow in maturity as a congregation? We're a young congregation. For many of us, the, the idea of committing to the church, committing to Christ, is something new to our families and something new to us. And therefore, as we think about who God is, we then realize that, that, that we have a path laid before us. I'm to be constant in my word. I'm to be constant in the promises that I've given to God and before his church. And I'm to be constant in my love toward my brothers and my sisters. And when we pursue that, just to conclude here, as we pursue that, we then give all glory to God who has taken us from a people who are fickle, who are tossed about by every wind and everything, every wave throwing us about. And he has made us stable in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should define us. Constancy in worship, constancy in his, constantly in his word, constancy in loving one another in our confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us pursue that by faith in Christ together. And let us grow in maturity in Christ in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, what a wonderful reminder uh, it is to know that you are a God who does not change, that you are the same. Your years do not end. And though in the midst of a world that is constantly changing and often causes us to grow fearful, yet you are our rock. And so, Father, as those you have made in your image and those whom you have remade in Jesus Christ, may we also pursue constancy in our lives that we would be fully committed to your will and to your glory, to your church, to your people, to the name of Christ as we live for him and his kingdom in this world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.